Hello, Bookstube viewers and listeners. Almost nothing makes me happier than having a return guest. And having a guest who's now here for her fourth time makes me absolutely overjoyed, as you will be when you take a look at Jane Healy's new historical fiction, Good Night from Paris. Welcome, Jane. I'm so happy to have you back. Thank you so much for having me back. I'm so happy to be here. Good to so, see you. So, Jane, your books intrigue me for, uh, for many reasons, but one of my favorite things about your book is, books is that you manage to incorporate a person, other than the lead character that we may or may not be familiar with, you've always got other real people in here to intrigue us, to see how they like intersect with your main character. So why don't you tell us a little bit about Drew Layton, who's the subject of this book. Yeah, so this book, um, it, like you said, it's my fourth novel, and it's a little bit of a departure from my other books. They were all historical fiction, but this one is biographical fiction. So mm -hmm. the protagonist, Drew Layton, it was a real person in history. She was an actress in Hollywood in the 1930s. She was kind of a rising star. And then um, in 1938, she met her, hus her soon-to-be husband, Jacques Tartier, and it was a whirlwind romance, and she left everything behind, left Hollywood behind, and married him and moved to Paris. And then, of course, um, the war started for France, and he went off to war, and she decided to stay despite everyone in her life wanting her to go back to America to be safe. And she took a job essentially as the first Voice of America broadcasting to an American audience in the evenings about what was really happening on the continent of Europe. And she became so successful at it that um, the Germans start, started broadcasting on Berlin radio saying that they would execute her as soon as they occupied France. And that was just the beginning of this unbelievable story of her life during the war. Well, and the, um, I like the broadcast stuff because she was, uh, you know, to see how being a screen actress in Charlie Chan movies um, to and becoming a broadcaster, um, you know, I liked how you portrayed that she wasn't very confident about it at the beginning. She was, I mean, this is a great difference in skill set between, you know, being in movies of like the 30s and 40s and then all of a sudden being responsible for um, promoting the war effort to an America that was not really sure that a divided country that didn't really want to enter the war and didn't see any real reason to do it, and yet Americans in Paris were being asked to, you know, put it all out there. And you ha even had a little bit about, you know, Charles Lindbergh, who was um, kind of a shill for the, for the Germans before, you know, before the war started. So you I loved how you converted Drew into a radio broadcaster. But the even more amazing part, you know, as if that wouldn't be enough, the more amazing part is what happened to her afterwards. So why don't you tell everybody a little bit about that? Yes, yeah, so um, she, she gained success as a broadcaster and until, of course, um, June of 1940 when France falls, when, the, when Paris is occupied. And, um, and so she, she's terrified because she knows that they are, you know, the Germans have a bounty on her head as Drew Layton. So from there on out, she starts go using just her married name, hoping that they'll ne never make the connection, but always kind of looking over her shoulder. And, um, and then after Pearl Harbor, um, she is arrested with a number of uh, several hundred other American women. And I never knew this story. It was so remarkable to me. They were rounded up on buses. 
and arrested and imprisoned in a zoo outside Paris. That part was amazing. Wild. And, you know, she was, they were trying to make light of it and saying, you know, bring us bananas for the monkey house. Oh, yeah. They were in the monkey house, and that was their prison. They had set up, like, cots. At, the Germans had set up cots, and their friends and family had to pay five francs to get in so they could yell at them over the fence about, you know, bring me my socks. And um, it was so wild to me. And, and you mentioned other characters in history. She, Sylvia Beach, the owner of Shakespeare and Company Bookstore, um, she was on, in prison there as well. And... Um, and lots of other expatriates like from, from history. And it was so remarkable that I never heard of this story. And that, that story of the zoo, it had such interesting elements of comedy and tragedy, like you said. And, and that was when I'd, I came across it in my research for my last book, The Secret Stealers. And that was when I was like, okay, I, I have to file this away. Like this story is crazy. And who is Drew Layton? And I feel like there's a, there might be a book here. Um, was Drew Layton in The Secret Stealers at all? She wasn't, but she popped up in my resource research for The Secret Stealers, like in a few places, just like a sentence here or there, a paragraph, and, I, I, and, and particularly the whole incident with the rounding up of Americans um, in Paris. Uh, so I was, I, I put, you know, like I said, I filed it away, and I thought, I, I, I didn't really intend to write another World War II book, because as you know, it's a very crowded subgenre of historical <laughs> fiction. There's a lot of World War II, but her, you know, her story was so stranger than fiction, and her life was so compelling. I, I had to try. Well, there's. I don't think there's that much World War II as an American abroad. I mean, there's a lot about British women and you yes, know, yeah, a lot of but, British um, women. She's she's really an intriguing character because, of, and I saw pictures, and I will show viewers and listeners some pictures. She was a knockout, there's no oh, doubt yeah. about it. But you know, <laughs> I guess in France, she had a particularly captivating effect on you know Frenchmen and even on Germans. Um, yes. So let's, let's move on to um, where she went after she was released from the zoo because I thought, you know, just from the little I knew about her and, and the book that it was all gonna be, take place in Paris. But the Paris action ends fairly quickly. And then where does she end up? So she's then um, imprisoned for a few months in the mountains uh, in, a, in a spa resort town called Vittel, um, which they had, the Germans had made it into a pr prison for American and British women um, living in, still living in France. And um, it wasn't, it was monitored by the International Red Cross, so it wasn't as brutal, the conditions weren't as brutal as some of the other concentration camps we hear about. Um, so they had food, they had decent shelter, no heat, but decent shelter. Um, and she was in prison there, but, um, but determined to get out um, almost from the start. And so she came up with this harebrained idea to fake cancer. I don't, okay, I don't want you to talk too much about that because I don't want, that was really amazing and I don't want to, uh, I don't want to spoil her. Oh, okay, yeah, it. no more spoilers about that. But um, but then, uh, you know, when she finally gets released from prison, she moves to a little village called Barbizon, which is like an artist village. It's, a, it's an hour and a half southwest of Paris by train. And um, she, after like lying low for a little bit, recovering from her, her ordeal, being imprisoned, she starts getting involved in the efforts to rescue 
um, fly allied flyers that are starting to crash all around Paris and beyond and the villages and, and countryside. She starts getting involved in the efforts to, you know, not only clothe and feed and hide them, but get them out of the country safely. I thought um, the village, so she was in this village because her husband's family um, was, you know, had a, had a, a house or a cottage in the, in the town. And I thought that the relationships within the town and the relationships with her helper, um, Nadine. Nadine. Yes. So Nadine is a fantastic secondary character, fantastic. Um, almost deserves her, almost worthy of her own book, I think. <laughs> yeah. Um, they were so, but they were growing food. Yes, you know they were helping people keep people fed, but they were trying to avoid um, the mayor, who gave the appearance of being a collaborationist with the Germans and with some stray Nazi sympathizers who were around. And she did lose her husband. I mean, mm -hmm. that was um, so sad. And yeah. um, I thought that was very well done. But she seemed to take consolation from her war work and also from being out in the country. That seemed to really suit her. Yes. So yeah. it wasn't all like glamorous, no, gay no, Perry far from it. Yeah, gowns. Yeah. She found that she took to, you know, at, in the initially when she started growing vegetables and raising animals to try to f help feed her friends in Paris, with, and Nadine was right by her side, a lot of the villagers and the farmers in the area were like making fun of them and you don't know what you're doing. But when they saw that they were really serious about be making this successful, um, the farmers started to help her and give her tips and things. And, and the, yeah, there was some solace in that. And you know, and, and in terms of helping the, fly, the allied flyers too, one thing that I read about in her letters and her autobiography was like, she said, I, I had no recourse. You know, I couldn't, I couldn't sue anyone because my husband was dead. I had no, there was nothing I could do, but at least I could do this. You know, this gave me some comfort that I could help others in his honor. But, but there was no, in, there's no indication in the book anywhere of her taking advantage of privilege in any no. way, shape, or form. She refused. First of all, she refused to leave yes. France. So that was an amazing thing because you know, she really felt her dedication was to her adopted country and to her husband. So that was, I'm sure there were very, very, very many Americans who, given the chance, just left. Oh, why would, why yeah. would you stay? Yes. So yeah. that was the first thing. And then not only to stay out of loyalty, but to really do such fantastic war work. I wanted to mention something that I saw actually in the Globe this Sunday. It's a cartoon by Will Dowd, and he, it was, it's called Remembering Gertrude Stein. And one of the panels in it talks about Gertrude Stein and Alice B. Toklas fleeing Paris. So it says, at the outbreak of World War II, Stein fled Paris with only the bare essentials, her lover, their white poodle, and the 1878 portrait of Cezanne's wife. So they rode out the war also in a rural cottage. I don't know if she did any war work or anything. She ended up um, selling the Cezanne painting that he had sold her or given her to, to, to feed survive. them. Yeah. So that was another example of someone who refused, who was considered themselves a Parisian, I think, and refused to leave. But I had no idea that that was a period of Gertrude Stein's life. You know, I just picture her you know, in Paris. Yes, yeah, it's so, so I think fascinating. So I, I, I don't know if that'll start you off. <laughs> I, <don't laughs> I know, right? <laughs> another novel, Gertrude Stein, has probably been written about millions and millions <laughs> of times, but um, that's something that I, I never even thought about, about 
you know, not escaping when you had a, the bravery of just staying was just pretty staying. amazing. Yeah, and I was, you know, because up until the war, she lived a pretty pampered life. She had a pretty good life. And so it was, you know, the fact that she had this courage and this, you know, persistence and um, this gumption, really, to, to do all the things that she ended up doing is pretty remarkable. Like the, the change in, in who she was over the course of the war is really remarkable. So I guess I didn't think about it because all your novels are compelling, but how different was it dealing with a true life figure as your lead character as opposed to other books where you've sprinkled true life people in there? Yeah, this one was um, super challenging because of that. Like writing about a real person, um, there's, a, there's you know, more stricter parameters about uh, in terms of where you can go with the narrative. and. Um, if you saw my notes at the at the back, I always have historical research notes at the end. But um, in this one, I started writing the historical research notes as I was drafting the manuscript because I knew that this was a real person and I wanted to honor her and honor her life even when I took fictional leaps because I had to. I had to fill in the blanks. I had to tell a story. It had to have a beginning and a middle and an end and like you said, be compelling hopefully. Um, so this, yeah, it was really, really challenging and I was I was worried um, because I knew somewhere out there that she had family and so I actually as I was drafting it as well I tracked down her grandson and granddaughter um, to kind of make sure that they were okay with this coming out and this is what I was ha this is what was happening and I'm using her autobiography and and um, since then they, they've been great but it was that was really nerve-wracking so I would like to hear more about um, about what happened to her after after the war because the book ends basically with France being liberated and with her, you know, having helped a number of flyers who were downed in her area to be hidden and then to be smuggled and, you know, then the war was over and I don't know what happens to her afterwards. So yeah, um, afterwards, so by the end of the war she had directly helped 32 Allied flyers escape and and had assisted in helping over a hundred others get out of the country and so she writes this small autobiography about her time during the war and um, with the, with a ghostwriter and she um, it, the book comes out in like 46 47 and she takes a tour of the US and to talk about the book to talk about her experiences um, she was in several of the papers, and she, they actually had her reunite with some of the flyers in different oh, places, which is amazing. 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 The pictures are amazing. And so, like in New York City, she she reunites with five of them because she had actually hid um, five of them at the end of the war for seven weeks in her own house because there was no you know there was nowhere for them to go. They were kind of stuck until until Paris and France was liberated. Um, so she yes yeah, she tours America. She reunites with some of her family, and then she said, you know, but France is my home now. And she lived in France, um, remarried, um, uh, who the, his name was Jeffrey Parsons. He was head of the International Tribune in Paris. Oh, wow. Yeah, so she remarried and um, lived in France till her, like, I want to say late 70s, and then she came back and moved to California to be close to family, and she passed away when she was, like, 94. So um, I'm sure you must have read her obituary. Did it mention, I mean, did it focus on her war work more than anything else? A little bit, but yeah, no, not like, it's interesting. You know, after the war, she writes this book. She received 
um, some awards and accolades from the different countries of the Allied Flyers she held. And then, um, you know, lived kind of a quiet life. She didn't really go back to Hollywood or to acting so much. And um, she, she married Jeffrey Parsons. And um, yeah, she had a couple of apartments in Paris. I think they had a country house as well. Um, but yeah, no, it didn't really focus that much on her, on her service and her time during the war. I hope she didn't feel like, like forgotten. That would be sad. It would be sad. You know, yeah. I mean, one thing that was um, remarkable connecting with her family is they sent um, me her scrapbooks from her oh. Hollywood days and also from her tour of the U.S. And yeah, I don't know how she felt about all of that. Um, you know, at, at the at the end of her life, but the scrapbooks. Of, of her Hollywood days and the clippings from her tour of the US after the war were uh, amazing. I, I scanned them all and sent them safely back to them because I was very worried about having them in my possession. Wow, that's amazing that they sent you the original. So do the yes. grandchildren remember her? Um, the David, the grandson, did not. And that's like their whole family tree is a whole other story, honestly. <laughs> he didn't is it a whole other story you might be uh, thinking well, about? I mean, it was, it's, that was kind of wild. So he never met her. But the granddaughter, Tracy, um, had a relationship with her and had met her and had spent time with her in France. And, um, but she's described her as, um, you know, hard to, the relationship wasn't super warm. I think some of these, you know, after you've gone through what she went through during the war, I, I think she had a hard time connecting and, you know, with, her, with some of her family members. She kind of had a little bit of a wall up after uh -huh. that, yeah. I wonder that that's you would think maybe that was probably not that unusual considering the stress that she was under and even with writing a small book that's no guarantee that anybody's going to have any inkling of of what you went through and in the book itself you don't really deal with her family back in the United States much except to say that they wanted her to come home. Yeah, they wanted that's her back. Obvious. Yeah, yeah. So um, I wanted to ask you now that, um, so this is called biological? Uh, biographical fiction, Biographical yeah. fiction, because I had never heard that as a term. When does it change over, does it change over from um, historical fiction to biographical fiction the minute you have a real character? How, what makes that tag or that designation? Well, I think it, you know, it straddles both genres, but when the protagonist is a real person in history, that's, you know, that's when it's considered biographical fiction, when the, when the, the person that you're, the main focus of the book is someone who actually existed. But when in The Secret Stealers you had uh, very real, real people, how, so there must have been an incredible amount more research to do with Drew Layton than you did in any of your other books. But you still have a ton of research to do no matter what, whether yeah. it's literary or, or biographical, right? Yeah, yeah. I mean, I, you know, um, the good thing about Good Night from Paris is that because it takes place in occupied France, I, I was, you know, I'd already written The Secret Stealers and had a solid base of research uh, from that, you know, contextually that historical era, what was happening in the country, kind of the bigger picture stuff. And then Drew, um, you know, it was just, it was very hard to find, because she was kind of famous adjacent. Like she was mm. not huge, so there isn't a ton. Like, I, you know, there's newspaper clippings, but I found that some of the newspaper clippings when compared to her autobiography were incorrect anyway. Mm. Like you have to be careful. Um, and the letters, there's a, 
some archive letters of her that she wrote back to her family. Her family wrote to her um, at the Holocaust Museum in D.C. Um, they had the Tartier family letters, wow. and so that was very helpful in terms of her voice. Auto autobiography, of course, was helpful. But then it was like, like certain parts of her life, I had to draw from other people's perspectives. Like the t her time in the tell in the internment camp. Um, I had to kind of look at what Sylvia Beach went through because she was there. There were several British nuns who wrote about their experiences after. So well, I they were certainly very, very, very important to oh, the whole incredible. story. Yeah, so um, re reading about it from other women's perspectives who were there to kind of get a sense of, of what, that li what life was like in that camp on a day-to-day -day basis. Um, the hardest part for me the, um, was the first part of her life working at the radio station at the Paris Mondial as a broadcaster because you would think that it's a you know it's a media it'd be something it would be something and I dove down all these rabbit holes of research trying to find the man the transcripts of the radio or um, some recordings anything and there was nothing and I had I finally read somewhere that all of that had been destroyed mm -hmm. which was really unfortunate and also left me with a kind of this black box of okay, we know that the, the Germans wanted to kill her, like what did she say and do in, on these radio programs to, to warrant that? And so that part was, uh, re I really had to kind of start from scratch and say, well, I know that she interviewed the journalist Dorothy Thompson, who was you know, sounding the alarm about Germany's from the 1930s. I know that Josephine Baker was on and she was also part of the resistance in France. And I kind of just had to make it up how did you did you find that out from her autobiography that those people appeared with yes. her on the show? Yeah. So there was no historical record of it anywhere, even to nothing, to which was shocking. To. You know, I thought there would be something. Well, but especially because Dorothy Thompson and Josephine Baker and Sylvia Beach are three women who've been. There's been a lot written about them. Yeah, yeah. So I mean, I really I, there was, you know, I knew from her autobiography that and from her letters that she knew these women she had interviewed some uh, them at least more at least once if not more than once for her shows and um so that was that was what i drew from i just said okay well what did they talk about and right. dorothy thompson was so prolific with her columns and her her own radio show in the u.s and i so i took a lot of her kind of writing and 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 you know and made it up as you do in fiction and well, she's, you know. she's pr i would say isn't she the most prominent female war correspondent there was. Oh yeah, she was and, extraordinary. And you put in a little part, I thought that was interesting because um, I knew she had been married to Sinclair Lewis who, you know, that's like, so when I read that and reminded me, I thought about, I had just finished a biography of Ethel Merman. Oh wow. <laughs> and she had been married to Ernest Borgnine for like a month. <laughs> and that didn't last. So I was thinking about, you know, what the difference between um, Dorothy Thompson and, and Sinclair Lewis. So Dorothy Thompson, I have to, I'll have to look for um, some more writings about her because uh, yeah. does she tempt you at all or have there been too many things written? Oh yeah, I mean, there's not been much in terms of fiction, but there's been a lot of nonfiction. I've read, uh, you know, there's been some, there's some really good books about her and her life and her career because um, she was one of the first and uh, maybe only international journalists to interview Hitler uh -huh. um, and actually wrote a book about that experience. And this, she interviewed him in like the early 1930s. And 
And she predicted, when you read her writing, you're like, oh my God, she knew, she saw it all coming. She saw everything coming in Europe. She knew that America had to be, was gonna have to be involved. It was inevitable in the war efforts. And, um, and, and she was, yeah, she was just so brilliant and inspiring and not afraid to speak her mind. I, I do a presentation, as you know, at libraries and things. And um, I have this picture of her in 1938 at Madison Square Garden. There was um, a pro-Nazi rally. A Bund rally. Yeah, yeah. a Bund rally of 20,000 Americans who were pro-Nazi. And, um, and she wasn't going to go. But then she decided that I, I, she had to go. She was going to an award ceremony, some, something honoring her that evening in New York City. And she drove to Madison Square Garden and got herself in the front row with the press and started heckling every speaker that went on stage. And they had to escort her out like under you know cloak because they, so they were going to kill her. People oh wanted to kill God. her. Well, we, you know, we've seen enough of that lately to understand the ramifications of that and and of course reading more about the war and about uh, the division in the United States about whether to participate or not reminded me of Ukraine you know oh that, yeah, that yeah. there's a lot of similarities now yeah. and what what motivates people I mean I'm not saying we have to put all our money in Ukraine but what motivates people to support Putin who are in this country just you know, blows me away. Yeah, yeah. I mean, yeah. The parallels um, definitely. I felt them as I was doing the research with some of these things. Um, another parallel was um, in Paris when the refugees were coming in from other countries, like flooding into the country. And at, at the time I was researching and writing the book, um, it, the Ukrainian refugees were fleeing, were fleeing, flowing into Poland. <laughs> sorry, <laughs> um, and. And that really, like the parallels to that were not lost on me as I was reading it. And I actually had a podcast interview with this woman um, who, does, who does an author podcast. And she said, you know, uh, that part where the, these Belgian refugees are, are fl fleeing into Paris. I'm sorry, <laughs> tripping <laughs> up on that word. Um, uh, she said, uh, my grandmother was one of the children who, oh. who was a Parisian refugee from Belgium. Wow. And I was like, and she said that really moved me because you don't read about it that much, but, but you know, they, they had to leave their home with basically the shirts on their back and nothing else and, had, and ended up in Paris. But people in France, French people did not generally flee when the Nazis came, did they? I mean, Jewish people were, you know, eliminated, yeah. but I'm, I'm talking about like people who weren't, uh, executed or put in concentration camps. Did people in France generally stay in place? And because, well, I mean, where are you going to go other than to England? That could have been the only place to go, right? Yeah, or the United a States. A lot of them who were in, in Paris oh, in the months leading up to the occupation of 1940, a lot of them fled south and ended up, you know, in, the, in what was called the Free French area oh. in the southern part of, of France until it was fully occupied in 1942. But right. yeah. A lot of the families fled south or they fled to the countryside if they had any sort of country home or things like that. Um, they got out of the major cities, I think because they were afraid of bombing and, sure, and whatnot sure. as well. Yeah. But they didn't undergo the type of bombing that England did. No, no. Because they kind of they kind of stayed. It's really, yeah. uh, do you get more, uh, more interested in World War II as you've done two books of research or are you like, Okay, there's. I'm not the only one working in this realm. I'm interested in doing something else. 
Yeah, no, I mean, um, at, well, really, Beantown was from a very different perspective, but that was World War II, yeah. too, and mostly takes place in the UK. Um, but I, I love it. I love World War II history. I find it fascinating. Obviously, I wouldn't be writing about it, but but yeah, I feel like it's it's a pretty crowded genre, so I don't, um, I think that the next project, whatever that's going to be, is not going to be World War II. Oh, well, <laughs> I, I feel kind of disappointed but understanding, but I also <laughs> wanted to talk about your next project that you're kind of doing already, which oh, is yeah. historical happy hour. <laughs> so I teased Jane when she came in that <laughs> she was my, my main competition now. But tell us a little bit about that, please. Well, thank you for asking. I, um, I do a live webinar um, once a month with a historical fiction author that I admire that has a new book coming out. Um, and I started it during the pandemic because um, you know we have, we're all sitting around, and it was a way Why to not, right? support other author friends and talk about their books rather than just being like, oh, me, me, me. And so um, <laughs> it's been really fun. And I, I, I would honestly, I would do it more often than once a month, but I don't read that fast. I don't have the time. Well, plus, <laughs> I mean, you are doing other things at the same yeah, time. Yeah, a lot going too. on. <laughs> uh, so, um, so it's live, and people can register to attend live and ask questions. But then um, my husband, God bless him puts it out as a podcast and uh, on YouTube as a as a recording as well. All right, well, I'll share. We're, I'm afraid we're running out of time, but I will share more information on Historical Happy Hour. Congratulations. Thank you. Yeah. And very quickly, in like 30, in 30 seconds or less, um, if you're not doing World War II next, what's in your mind for your next novel? Um, well, I'm kind of superstitious, so I, I won't say too much because I, I went down a path in the fall and um, and and veered off it because I was talking about it too much. But I I will say it's it's World War II adjacent. It's okay, just not. Okay, there we go. Yeah. I'm not going to press you because <laughs> I know that you. That, well, most authors, nobody wants to say. Well, let me give you the entire plot of my next novel. <laughs> right, nobody right. does that. But okay, World War II adjacent sounds very interesting. <laughs> thank you. Okay, Jane, thank you so much for coming on for the fourth time with your fourth successful novel. I'm always thrilled when I see that. You've got a book coming out, and I'm so happy you live so close to me so, oh, so you, you can come to the studio instead of, it must be, and you are making appearances all over Massachusetts at libraries, at um, book clubs that support you. I think that's wonderful. So it's great to see you, and thanks again. And our readers and listeners, please don't forget about Good Night from Paris by Jane Healy, which I guarantee you will enjoy. And you have a good night, too. <laughs>